In the whole of reality, there is only one law. The law of love. Sorry, Carol here. This is the sort of thing we tell our children when they're little, right? Love conquers all. But as any parent knows, a lot of this talk goes away. Life is complicated. So what do we want to tell our children about the power of love? Is it quoting Charlie Chaplin from the movie The Great Dictator? We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Or Lin-Manuel Miranda in his acceptance speech for a Tony Award in the wake of a deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando. We live through times when hate and fear seem stronger. We rise and fall and light from dying embers, remembrances that hope and love last longer. And love is 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 love. Or lyrics from the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, in these troubled times, I have been questioning, where is the love? So we went on a hunt. A hunt for the power of love. But when we went on that search for a story about love, I never thought I would end up talking to a woman who once lived a life based on hate. My name is Shanna Martinez. I am the program manager at the Free Radicals Project. And because I was a a neo-Nazi white supremacist skinhead, uh, I work now to help people who are currently engaged in hate and violence-based lifestyles to disengage so that young people will be empowered to make different choices than the ones which I made. Martinez is Shannon's married name. She grew up Shannon Phone in a suburb in New Jersey. She took gymnastics lessons, went to gifted summer camps. But by the time she was a high school sophomore, something had already gone off the rails. She was deeply accustomed to feeling like a disappointment. She'd felt it when she got carried away by holiday spirit at age six. When I was six, I was like dancing in the like plastic candlelight of the Christmas lights on Christmas Eve uh, to the Nutcracker. (laughs) And I did a cartwheel and I ended up like fracturing my foot. And they like the first thing that they did was to yell at me. They're like, oh, I don't you what are you doing? We told you not to do gymnastics down there. And it's Christmas Eve. And don't you know how much this is going to cost? And she felt like a disappointment when it came to school. My recollection is I was grounded from the time I was in second grade until I finally left home when I was 15. Like that. I'm like, <laughs> like that's my recollection because I refused to do my homework. I'm Carol Lloyd. And welcome to the second season of Like a Sponge, Great Schools podcast for parents about the science of how kids flourish. This season, we take a sharp turn into the land of character, that stuff inside us that makes us strong, kind, brave, resilient, that stuff we want our kids to have an unlimited supply of before they inherit this demented world we grownups have created. For the next seven episodes, we'll be diving into the stories, the science, and the ways that parents can help plant the seeds for character to grow. Today, we're talking about love. Not romantic love, more like love for your fellow humans, and how to raise kids who have that capacity to love, not just the people they're close to, but humanity as a whole. Sorry, couldn't resist. 
seriously. Research shows kids who learn this ability to be compassionate and loving for people beyond their inner circle are happier, healthier, they live longer. They even do better in school. It also may be the thing that helps them tackle some of society's most intractable problems when they grow up. This idea might already be part of your family's spiritual values, but what's interesting is how science is offering new evidence for how love for humanity works inside the brain and between people. And that's where the story of a little girl who grew up in a quote-unquote normal family and became a white supremacist comes in. Because here's the thing. This podcast about love, it starts with what can happen when a person feels acutely unloved. Quick note, there's some discussions of sex and violence that might be disturbing to some people and too much for young kids. When Shannon talks about her freshman year in high school, it sounds like she was pretty accomplished. She got A's and B's, did sports, mock trial, modeled UN. She was elected class president, but she didn't feel successful. She felt like a screw up. She says her older brother was a straight A, straight and narrow student who was admitted to Harvard, but turned it down to become a Catholic priest. So yeah, she felt like she never quite measured up. And when things went wrong, she kept quiet. Experience taught her, whatever it was, it was her fault. One night when she was 14, she went off to a party, hoping to see a guy she had a crush on. She started drinking vodka, and she ended up alone in a car with two random guys. I ended up going to this party because there was a, a boy there that I really wanted to meet. And I ended up drinking, and uh, uh, eventually uh, a friend of mine and I were outside with these two guys talking, and then eventually it was just me. Um, And I remember saying no. I remember talking about how I wanted to wait until I was married. I remember talking about how I wanted to be an English professor when I grew up. Um, And then I remember uh, that I was in the back of a car, and he was on top of me. Um, having sex with me. Um, and then I remember his friend that was with us, was on top of me after him. And then I remember being dragged back up to the house and sort of thrown in the back screen door of the house onto the linoleum floor. And my friends being inside making chicken nuggets. And they were like, here, t- eat. You know, they gave me this snow white plate, paper plate with seven chicken nuggets and a glob of ketchup on it. And I remember sitting in a chair in the living room and eating those. Shannon now remembers those chicken nuggets on the white plate. But she woke up the next morning with no way to make sense of what had happened and no one she felt like she could talk to. It was never even a question in my mind to tell my parents. She buried her experience, told herself a different story. Instead of a gang rape it became something else. She'd tell people she lost her virginity to two men at a party. You know, it's like if you don't deal with trauma, it doesn't just go away. You can't make it go away. It comes out some way. Um, And for me, it just, it ended up just seeping out as rage. 
Um, and I just was consumed with rage. And I don't mean like teen angst. I felt angry all the time. And I just, I was consumed as well with just like feelings of absolute worthlessness. She found herself drawn to the punk scene. They seemed as angry and outcast as she felt. On the periphery of the punk movement were the skinheads. And they caused fights at every single punk rock show that I ever went to. And so, like, there was this part of me where I was like, okay, like, this is this is a place where it's going to be okay for me to be angry. And also, I think I was just like, well, they're kind of, they're like, they're Nazis. So, like, they're kind of the worst of the worst. Like, they've got to take me in. With the Nazis, she found a home for her anger. And over time, her anger grew into hatred. You know, as I hung out with them more, I became aware that, okay, for this to continue, I'm going to have to give my assent to the ideas that, you know, that, that I hate black people, I hate brown people, I hate Jews. And I mean, I, I hated everything. I hated the whole world. So it was not that big of a leap for me. Like pollution poisoning a water system, hatred seeped into her thinking. And thinking hardened to ideology. Eventually, over the five years that I would be involved with this movement, I ended up believing that a race war was imminent and that we should prepare for this war, um, that, uh, that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy, um, that the Jews controlled the banks and the media, and that I was uh, superior to people of color. And eventually, that hatred spawned action. So what started with singing along with music would then, you know, became targeted flyering in particular neighborhoods or in parking lots of synagogues or, you know, in parking lots that we would put overtly racist flyers and materials out. And then, you know, eventually would end up with, um, you know, like this tear gassing attack on a, on a gay nightclub. By 15, she'd run away. Over the next four years, Shannon crashed anywhere where other white supremacist kids lived. She begged for food on the streets. Occasionally, the police picked her up, took her back to her parents. When she was 17, her parents told her enough was enough. She was on her own. This is where her story could have taken a more predictable turn. She could have lived on the streets, maybe become a victim of more violence or committed more acts of violence herself. Instead, a woman she barely knew did something that, in retrospect, seems really nuts. She invited Shannon to come and live in her home. I mean, you have to understand, like, what I looked like. A photo from that time shows a girl with a shaved head, a Celtic cross tattooed on her thigh, heavy goth eye makeup and holding one of her arms in a Hitler salute. She's smiling. I mean, I was tough and gruff and mean and angry. And, you know, and here's this Montessori school teacher, and she takes me in. Someone had done the same for this woman's oldest son when he was in trouble. And so this mom that took me in saw this as kind of like paying it forward. She was just like, I, I promised that if I ever had a chance to, to do this for someone that I would, because I really believe that it kept my son alive. So the single mom made Shannon, this teenage outcast, part of her family. 
They did chores together, organized birthday parties, went grocery shopping. She let Shannon babysit her kids. She started having conversations with Shannon about the future. Like, hey, you obviously love books. Don't you want to go to college? It was then that Shannon describes experiencing something that felt completely unfamiliar. Unconditional love. She dreamed dreams for me that I have forgotten how to dream for myself. Love wasn't a magic bullet. It would take Shannon years to deal with the trauma of her early life, confront the fact that she'd been raped, come to terms with the hurt she'd caused others. But this thing, what Shannon experienced as unconditional love, started breaking down that anger that had organized her life. And slowly, the hate started to lose its grip. So you may be asking, what does Shannon's story have to do with my child? Well, her story is an example of the power of love to change a life. And it mirrors what researchers are actually finding about the way that love changes the world. Amy Warren is a developmental psychologist who has spent years thinking about why some people feel love and compassion for all and other people feel it just for a few special people. In her research, she studied something she calls great love and compassion, which she defines as compassion for people's suffering and a wish for their joy and freedom. She says the way to grow a person who will have that strong, brave capacity for loving all of humanity starts with something much closer to home. To be able to realize our potential as humans, we need to feel safe and secure and loved. So that's the basis. It's about loving and being compassionate toward your child in an unconditional and unlimited way. So it's, it's from that place that they will come to know and, and express great love and compassion later in their lives, arguably, based on my research. It is in that relationship. It's, it's, we, we learn about love by being loved. And so that is the core of what we can do as parents. I wonder, just probably a lot of parents are thinking, well, I love my child, mm -hmm. you know. Of course, we love our children, right? We're designed to love our children. But there may be very challenging moments where we don't accept some behavior we're seeing. And while some behaviors may not be safe or acceptable, they can still be held as a part of that child in that moment. And that's the unconditional quality that I'm talking about. You can say, I don't, I don't want you to hit me. I don't, I, I don't accept that as an as a okay behavior. But I, I see you as a whole person, even in this moment, and I see why you're feeling frustrated. So it's, showing them great love and compassion in all the moments, even the uglier moments. In other words, it's in those moments when our kids screw up that we get the opportunity to show them unconditional love. That's what will grow their capacity to love outside their circle of family and friends. 
The problem is that sometimes, even though we love our kids, the message isn't getting through. For love to work, it can't be something just inside you. It's got to reach your child, like a current of electricity. So how do kids know they're loved? We ask a group of 6th and 7th graders from Millennium Middle School in San Francisco who share the things their parents do and say that make them feel loved. It's a lot of the expected stuff. Hugs and kisses. Every day, my mom drops me off at the bus stop, and every day she says, I love you, and then I say, I love you too. Getting groceries, getting, making us food, driving us to school, um, tucking us into bed, maybe reading books to us. But it was also when the kid felt like the parents sympathized when they made a mistake. I had a bunny, and I forgot to close the door. Um, and an animal went in and hurt my bunny. And then the bunny was dead. It was my fault, but they gave, they gave me hugs and left me alone. At that time, I felt like I really shouldn't be getting loved. Your bunny may have died, but it's going to be okay. You got an F? That must be disappointing, but I'm here to help. You broke your foot doing something we told you not to, so we're spending Christmas Eve in an ER? We still love you. So showing our kids unconditional love is a foundation. But the science of love suggests we can build on that. Amy Warren's research analyzed interviews of high school and college-age kids from different religious and socioeconomic backgrounds. She was trying to learn what made the kids who had this great love and compassion different from the kids who didn't. And she found something interesting. The kids who had this quality were more likely to report having had experiences with diversity, with people not like them. In a way, this makes sense. Forming relationships and sharing experiences with people of all different ages, races, religions, ethnicities, and socioeconomic backgrounds makes you draw your circle wider. At the very heart of love and compassion, of being able to feel love and compassion for another person, is our ability to feel at home with that other person and to see ourselves in that other person. So what about loving people who have different values, who spew political positions you despise all over your Facebook feed? That's harder, right? Research suggests it's not just exposure to people who are different. It's having meaningful personal relationships with people you might want to block on Facebook. That's how we grow our capacity to love. There's this research, and it focuses on this thing called the fast friendship process. It's kind of like platonic speed dating. Fast friendship is a term. It's not my term. Okay, I didn't coin it. That's Stephen um, Post, founder of the Institute on uh, Unlimited Love at, uh, and professor Stony at Stony Brook University. University. He's an expert on all the research on love, not only for the individual, but its effect on society. Um, was very concerned about prejudice and the tendency in kids under the right conditions to be hateful, to be demonizing. And, and so, you know, we all, we all worry about this because the tendency to want to identify exclusively with an in-group and hate the out-group 
is pretty powerful. And so what Art Aaron did here at Stony Brook as a program for incoming college students, he had people pair up with a fast friend from a different cultural, uh, racial, uh, economic, uh, educational background, somebody very, very different. So during Freshman Orientation Week, they do these fun activities and challenges designed to help people get to know each other fast. And by forming these friendships across groups, uh, what he found was that people had a very much more uh, accepting uh, attitude uh, toward people who are different than they are. The idea that college freshmen making friends with each other reduces stereotypes and therefore bias is what I call duh science. Of course it does. But here's the amazing thing. Now this simple method, matchmaking friendships between different people, is being used all over the world, in communities where the strife between groups runs so deep, hatred is passed down like a family heirloom. So, for example, if you go to Belfast in Ireland, uh, many studies show that by about age four, uh, most Catholic kids hate Protestants and vice versa. Same thing in the Middle East. Most Jews hate Muslims and vice versa. Not entirely, but mostly. And so um, if you do the fast friends approach, what you, would, what you do is you look for opportunities to create friendships across these groups, and the friendships then blossom into an appreciation for others, not just tolerance, but an acceptance. So, okay, personal connection. Friendship can break down our ideas about each other, build bridges, even between enemies. But how does this actually work in the human brain? Decades of research on compassion meditation shows that compassion is learnable, and it actually changes the brain. Turns out, compassionate love is like a muscle. It grows stronger with practice. Which brings us back to Shannon Martinez, who is now raising kids in a small town outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and paying forward that unconditional love she received when she was a Nazi skinhead more than two decades ago. It's only now, as, you know, somebody in my midlife, where I I really understand the depths of that, what felt so undeserved compassion and just the profundity um, of its impacts on me and how I have taken what she had done for me and have tried to replicate that in my life. When she's talking with young people who are consumed by anger and hate, she tries to show them the same kind of love that changed things for her by listening. A lot of helping people disengage from hate and violence-based movements uh, begins with just listening. Um, For me, it's a very targeted listening. I'm listening for their story of looking for identity, looking for belonging, looking for purpose and agency in their own life. I'm listening for trauma. And the very first step is just, you know, is to believe that they're worth listening to and listening, you know, I mean, building trust, listening to the difficult parts of their story. Hearing Shannon talk about listening to these neo-Nazis and building a bond of trust with them that will melt their hate, that's when it hit home. Raising kids with the capacity for great love and compassion isn't some nice to have. It's what the world needs now. I 
believe with all of my heart that if we could look at one another and that our first response is to say this person is a human being worthy of love, no matter what they have done, even if they need consequences for their actions, that the way that we interact with one another and the laws that we create and the societies and communities we create would be transformed. So when I was a kid, I would listen to Stevie Wonder's Love's in Need of Love Today and weep. It was the late 70s. And here I am now, listening to a former white supremacist sing the same old song. But it's not just the song of the King of Soul and a former hate monger. Researchers agree, love may be a key survival skill, especially now in a moment when our society is more divided than ever. So how do you do it? Make sure your child knows they're loved, even when they're a royal pain. Expose your kid to diverse ideas and people and talk about the importance of having compassion, even for people you may disagree with or not understand. And finally, be the love you want to see in the world. As with everything, kids learn far more from what we do than what we say. That's the end of our first episode for our new season. If you love this episode or even liked it, please share the good feelings with friends, family, and write a review on iTunes. Thank you to all the kids in Michael Fisher's class at Millennium School and Amy Warren's home base school for sharing their insights about love. Great love and gratitude to Greater Good Science Center and John Templeton Foundation, who generously funded this podcast and the downloadable resources for schools. We love you guys. This podcast is produced by Carol Lloyd and me, Charity Ferreira, for the nonprofit Great Schools. We're a school information website and also the source of lots of helpful information for parents. Our sound designer is composer and recording artist Christopher Ferreira. You can learn more about him and his music by visiting our website at greatschools.org. Special thanks to our managing editor, Jessica Kelman, and to our advisor on the science of character, Dr. Rich Lerner, the director of the Institute for Applied Research in Youth Development at Tufts University. Oh